Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Glad to have you joining me today. I've got a jam-packed show put together and it's been fun working on these podcasts and kind of finding my own voice, but also finding guests each week as sometimes proves very challenging. And then sometimes you just end up getting lucky with all these wonderful people. But I really appreciate everybody that's come on to be a guest over the last few weeks as now in week eight, that is two months of doing this show, which has been amazing. And I appreciate all of the positive support in return uh, today as we are about two weeks away from the OBS March sale. That's the first two-year-old in training sale. I'll be talking to a couple of consigners, one of whom campaigned a very special Philly day out of the office to grade one victory this year. And that's trainer Tim Ham, who also has a big breeding operation and some big partnerships in the state of Ohio. Also, we'll have Jimbo Gladwell Gladwell from Topline Sales um, as he gets ready with his wife, Tori, for their first consignment of the year, also really active in pin hooking, and we'll get a chance to pick his brain a little bit on that end. And we'll also be joined by Joe Migliori, who's been the sales associate for the syndicate West Point Thoroughbreds for the past six years and is now going out on his own as a bloodstock agent. So looking forward to hearing from all of these people and all the different sides of it as well as yes, it's the selling the horses, it's the people buying the horses, it's the owners, the vets, the uh, people showing the horses at these sales. I think as we've really covered on these shows, there's a lot that goes into just getting one horse in the ring. So happy to welcome in Jimbo Gladwell from Topline Sales. Jimbo, really happy to have you on the show today. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to pick your brain a little bit. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you having me on the show, and uh, it's it's my pleasure. I wanted to ask you a little bit about top line sales with you and your wife, Tori Run, but uh, being involved in the world of horses has been in your blood. Tell me a little bit about how you got to the point of, of starting top line sales. Well, my dad used to do the two-year-olds a long time ago, and, and a way for us to branch out away from, from him a little bit was for us to start top-line sales, and we actually started uh, pin-hooking weanlings to yearlings, and, and that's where we got our start, and then it kind of moved back into the two-year-old market is where we really expanded to. <coughs> and we have the first two-year-old sale coming up soon with the OBS two-year-old in training sale, um, the March sale, and you're based in Ocala. Do you kind of point more towards some of those OBS two-year-old sales in particular? No, um, we tend to let the horses kind of tell us where they want to go. We, we try to obviously support mm-hmm. OBS being that it's a hometown sale, and it's generally a little bit cheaper for us to sell it in Ocala just because of all the uh, dynamics, hotels, and help, and all the things that go into the sale process. But um, we we generally have a little bit larger consignments in OBS and Ocala just for that reason that it's usually a little cheaper to sell here. And how do you decide which horse goes into what sale? Well, uh, pedigree and price obviously dictate a little bit of that, but a lot of the horses we we generally start at the same time, um, late August, early September, and and as they start progressing in those first couple months, they'll separate themselves a little bit. And the, the horses that tend to want to be a little bit stronger earlier will will start pointing toward the March sales. And, and at any time, you know, they 
sell us, we need to slow down, we move them back a sale. So um, essentially they're all pointed toward March the first time we get on them. And then we just start shuffling them and, and separating them from there. You have sales like the Gulfstream Miami sale, which is kind of more the the boutique type of sale. Is that where you kind of look for some of the maybe bigger pedigree, stronger ones that you think might sell better for a sale like that? Or how do you decide some of those sales and differentiating? Absolutely. Um, Gulfstream, you want to take the best pedigreed horse you can down there. But at the same time, you have to take a a 10 physical. Um, That track, um, as you know, being down there, it's a little bigger, a little deeper. And it, it takes a, a lot of horse to get over it. And um, these horses that work fast over Gulfstream, generally, you know, almost every horse I'd take to Gulfstream would be a 10 flat horse at, at OBS. It, but they, they'll separate themselves a little bit over that track. But you, you want to take the A string down there for sure. Coming up with the March uh, two-year-old in training sale, tell me a little bit about what some of the prep goes into that as, of course, they will have the breeze. They'll have to mentally stand up to going through the sales rings and being shown. What on your end is some of the prep that you're doing for this March sale coming up? Well, we're um, obviously um, training a bunch and and doing, (laughs) you know, different things with each horse, every one of them's, uh, individual, but mostly, um, trying to get their mind right and keeping them in one piece. These fillies, as you, as you start to tighten the screws on them a little bit, they can be a little picky in in the feed bucket. And it's very important for me to get my horses into the sale with a lot of flesh on them and, and to have the something for the trainers to be able to take and hone down themselves, um, and, and get into race shape. If you show up at the sale with, with, horses that are you know really fit and already you know all of them squeeze down and squeeze the lemon on them you're uh you're not going to leave much for the trainers to work with so for us we're obviously we breeze about once a week and we're you know keep picking it up a little bit at a time with them but um you know week by week it's it's just taking each horse and and you know critiquing them just a little bit to get them where you want them uh in three weeks Looking at your draft for this March sale coming up, um, tell me a little bit about what we can expect from top line sales. It's pretty diverse as far as the pedigrees do go. A lot of black top and uh, black type, excuse me, in the families as well. Tell me a little bit about what we can expect from your consignment. Well, we've we've got a pretty broad consignment. Um, we've got obviously some top end horses, but we've got something for for everybody at the bottom end as well. Um, the April sales gotten so hard to get into that some people are taking some of their cheaper April horses if they're good enough and putting them in March. So we will have some cheaper horses that'll breeze good and work good and they look good. They're just a little lighter pedigreed. But uh, a couple of horses I'm really excited about, um, a, a freshman sire by practical, uh, Philly by practical jokes, uh, a really nice Philly. That sire, I've got four or five by him and, and they just are really good training horses, solid mentally. And uh, I'm very excited about a few of those. Um, I've got a Nyquist Philly. Um, obviously, I didn't like the, the t- two-year-old champion getting beat yesterday. It didn't help my cause at all, but um, we've got a really nice Nyquist Philly that, that could be a, a super fast Philly and a, and a couple into mischiefs that are doing everything right. So we've got, we've got a few that could be home run horses. We just got to see how everything works out. 
yeah, you mentioned a stallion like Into Mischief, which you see he, he his progeny just winning everything. I mean, from five furlong turf sprints to all the way to the Kentucky Derby. When you're watching horses by stallions that you have some offspring of, how much do you kind of keep tabs on that and, and what's happening on the racetrack? And does that give you confidence or maybe a little bit of nerves going into the sale? No, it's definitely something we watch because in, in our market, it's such a, a finicky niche market that people can get on and off a of sire so quick. So um, mm-hmm. some of these horses that you may have bought um, last year when things weren't going good, take a, a daredevil last year. Mm-hmm. Going into the uh, training sales, um, we wouldn't have been too keen on daredevil. And people buying him, they, you might have bought a couple at, at discount prices, but then by the time the the two-year or the I should say three-year-old filly started running the Oaks and the Freakness and I mean he was a horse that was on fire and um, it it can be very exciting if you get lucky and you buy one of these horses that are on the bubble and and it it explodes you know going into it but like for us with with the end of mischiefs I mean Jesus that horse gets such good training horses they're good-minded they're sound and uh, it's just a lot of fun uh, with a smaller operation, we wouldn't get many of them. So it's it's exciting when you have a few of those top sires. I wanted to ask you about with the two-year-old sales in particular, when you get there and your horses breeze the day before the actual sale, sometimes you're going to come back with a, a really good, like a 10 flat, like you were saying, to have the, the two-year-old breeze ups. And then sometimes you're going to see ones that maybe uh, don't impress how do you handle those kinds of things before the actual auction part of the sale even begins with the two-year-old breeze-up sales? So with the when the tax show's going on, and, and me and you, if we have a, a two-year-old, and, and obviously I'm supposed to have a pretty good idea of what they're going to do before they get there. So mm-hmm. um, hopefully, unless something happens, we're not going to be too disappointed. But when you do have one of those freaky, fast works, and it does go beyond your expectations it's it's hard not to get excited but you have to wait until you shoot x-rays because with the x-ray machine back there it's like somebody firing a gun at you and you just dodging bullets until it's over and they say okay you're clean so then you can like take a deep breath and you know you've got a product you can sell because there's nothing worse than than a horse working lights out and you coming back and you have an ankle chip or something like that that's probably not going to hurt the horse long term but it's going to hurt you for the sale process because um you know, for us, it, it's almost like a, a, a um, produce. If you're, you're shooting to sell it at one point in its life, and if you hold it longer, it sometimes it can spoil. So mm-hmm. um, if if you miss that one little window of opportunity, it could cost you hundreds of thousands. It, it's just a it's a small window we're shooting for. I think you bring up something really interesting about you know little physical issues that's not going to hurt a long. In, in the long-term career, what are some things that you find people are more willing to kind of be forgiving of at, at some of these sales? You know, for me, some of the things, you know, obviously if a horse is, has been shin bucked, that's something they can get over. Most of the bone stuff that horses have, chips and whatnot, things you can do surgery on that can fix, people can live with those things. The, the problems we have is if they have some sort of soft tissue injury, a tendon or a a suspensory injury or a throat problem that are really going to be detrimental to the uh, the soundness of the horse long term, or is is kind of up in limbo. They may recover, they may not. Things that won't hold together, or there's you know when you start putting percentages, fifty percent on it, 
Um, it's really hard to talk somebody into giving you much money for a horse that may or may not be okay. One thing I think I've gotten a few questions about as well for horses that don't meet their reserve or kind of the, the limit price that you're willing to sell a horse for. Mm-hmm. What happens then? You sometimes will have some private sales afterwards, or what do you do if a horse doesn't meet a reserve? Well, for us, we, we try to evaluate why we didn't get the horse sold. A, it was either because we were uh, wrong about who was on the horses or who was interested and what price point they were interested or uh, sometimes maybe the vets weren't passing x-rays. So let's say we, we bought a horse back for 150 that, that we had a bunch of vet action on. Well, maybe we overshot our reserve. You know, everybody's kind of in the 100, 125 range. And, and it might have been because I've got a client that's unreasonable. They had a lot of vetting on the horse, so they thought the price should be higher. Where then we try to put together a happy marriage. You know, if the client's willing to take less money, we try to find a buyer that was interested at that price. Um, or if, you know, um, if we just couldn't get the horse sold, we may come home, regroup, um, enter it in a later sale. And, um, sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes a a lot of times when we don't get them sold, it's, it's usually because of, um, not all the time, but usually because the clients aren't realistic about what their horse really should bring. And, um, and sometimes that's why we scratch horses. You know, if, if you have a horse that works 10 and three and you've got to get 150,000 or you're not going to be happy, um, Mm -hmm. I may tell you that you, you know, you're just going to have to run it. There's, there's no shot of them getting that kind of money for the horse. So, um, it's part of my job is to figure out what your horse is worth and, and to, to help you figure that out and get the most we can get for it. And you see that on the racetrack too. I mean, as they start running, being realistic of what level they're going to run at too. Um, What's it like for you guys then following horses that you've been able to sell and and seeing them on the racetrack and seeing them, you know, be successful in some of these big races? It's very rewarding. Um, There's nothing better than one that you've had on the farm and you've really connected with and and actually touted and, and, you know, I try to be conservative when I'm touting what we're training because so many variables go into this that that are completely out of our control and out of the horse's control. You might have the best horse in the world, but um, if he, you know, he could get sick, get hurt, um, so many things that happen, and then he doesn't show up, and people are like, "Well, you don't know what you're talking about. I told you that horse is no good," and um, mm-hmm. you know something might have happened that was out of your control. Where you know there some of these horses that they they do so good, you just can't help but talk about them. And we've had a couple of those over the years, and there's nothing more rewarding than than actually trying to sell somebody a horse and out there putting your name and your you know stamp on it and it being as good as you think it was. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's there's nothing better than that and seeing not just the sale price but also that success on the racetrack afterwards. I wanted to ask you a little bit about pin hooking, as I know that you've been successful with that too. Um, I was reading a story this morning, a couple of years ago, of a tapazar that he purchased for thirteen thousand, and then went on to sell for a hundred and five thousand. What are you looking for when you're pin hooking a horse? Well, for for me, we're just looking at at pretty much every horse in the sale, and we're looking at the the individual. The we'll look at the body, um, the balance, the the muscle. Um, how they handle themselves. And then once we find the ones that, that meet that criteria, we, we look at the pedigree and we'll make cuts from there. 
And if, you know, the pedigree should dictate kind of where we're at on the price. Um, but we try to just to, to come up with a really good physical individual horse. And that horse, actually the one you, you're talking about, um, I actually bought for my brother up at the Saratoga. I was working the sale for another guy, flew up there. And my brother had been looking for a horse for him and two of his other buddies that are firefighters. So this was actually the first horse they bought together. And we went back up to Saratoga and sold him for the 105. And it was uh, it was one of the greatest weekends of Top Line's career uh, to do it for the home team and some guys that, you know, them guys, they're they are working guys. They, they've never mm-hmm. seen a hundred thousand at one time. And they, you know, it was, uh, it was truly reward. That was about as rewarding as anything we've done. Just, uh, seeing it pan out that way for, for the home team. Oh, I can't imagine, especially having your family involved as well. That's, that's fantastic. And, and really, really cool to see. Um, but pin hooking can almost kind of be, a a world unto itself. And some guys really seem to focus just on that. Of course, that's almost like a, like a flip your horse type of move where you buy one, hopefully for a decent price and then sell it for even more. Um, is that something that you guys really focus much on still, or it's more focusing on prepping for some of these, uh, bigger two-year-old sales? What's kind of the, the business model as far as pin hooking does go? No, we still do a lot of pin hooking. We're um, we Tori dabbles in the breeding a little bit. She's up to about thirteen mares, but our our main um, focus would be our investments and our pin hooking stuff. Mm-hmm. And we we try to we put together a lot of partnerships. That we the the one thing about us is pretty much every horse that we buy um, within so, there's a couple clients I buy for the, the very top end that I don't buy into their horses because they want total control of what they do. But, um, for my partnerships and what we do, almost every horse we buy, we're invested, um, at some, some percentage, um, whether it's half, 25%, a third, um, we're, uh, putting our own money up and we're, um, you know, putting our, putting our own skin in the game, but it's, it's a very big part of what we do because, you know, we're essentially our biggest client and, uh, it's, it's fun. It's a, you know, we we've gotten my brother and my sister involved, some a lot of friends in the, in the family involved, and um, a lot of clients that are like family now. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a big part of what we do, but we do it at the weanland to yearling level, and we do the weanlings to two or the yearlings to two year olds, and um, it's 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 more fun for me shopping, to be honest with you, than than yeah. the selling part of it because it's so much fun trying to you know, scout out the, the diamond in the rough and, and trying to buy value. Um, we look at so many horses to only buy 20, um, you know, and we don't really have a set number of horses we have to buy a year. We try to, um, you know, just buy value. And, you know, if we only buy 10, that's fine. And if we buy 30, that's fine. And for you, when you're shopping at the weanling or the yearling sales, what are some of the physical things that, that are kind of make or break for you that you're looking for? Um, for me, the, the horses have to have um, pretty decent size, but they have to have some muscle tone and some, some mm-hmm. balance to them. And uh, they definitely like need to have a pretty good walk for us. They, they have to have an athletic walk to them. And uh, you know, uh, the way they move out of their shoulders is pretty important for us because if we need to train them, 
um, if you know, for the Wayneland's that is, if, if you if you happen to go on from the Wayneland's to the two year olds, that they still have to move well. So uh, it's it's very important for them to have some athleticism and, and the way they move is is really important. But but a lot of a lot of hip and muscle too. Um, if if you go through and you know look at our pictures when Tori does the top line pictures and, and you do ten of them that we or I could send them to you. It's uh, you'll see a pattern. They've got that mm-hmm. good angles to their hip and shoulder, pretty long neck, um, and a good walk on them. Yeah, I've gotten a chance to uh, to come once uh, to your farm in Ocala and seeing them come out on the end of the shank, you're like, Oh, okay. I know these ones are ready for the sale. You can see it immediately. And it's, it's very cool and it's very exciting. And for me, I love being on the racetrack, but I don't think there's anything really quite like the adrenaline being at the sales. Um, what, what's that like when you have one of yours in the ring or if you're trying to buy one that maybe you're going to pin hook? Um, well, two things that when they're in the ring, you're trying to sell them. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be good, but you just don't know how good. And, and most of the time we're close on our appraisals and, and, and what we might get, but every now and then you're, you miss it and, and it goes beyond what you think. And, uh, that's when it's truly unbelievable. I mean, we had a Philly last year that we bought for 25,000 and all year we're hoping she brings 75 and mm-hmm. it with the COVID and everything. I mean, I was panicking big time thinking life might be over. We need to, gather up all of our money we can gather up and and you know be ready and uh this filly goes into the ring and brings 170,000 and we were you know just blown away it's it's uh you know when you have those kind of scores they make up for the the little hiccups that happen you mentioned last year with the covid situation and a lot of the sales being rescheduled or pushed back or some of them even canceled um like the Saratoga sales what was that like for you and your operation in trying to adapt and get horses ready or get horses sold um we sold quite a few privately off the farm mm-hmm. um we were very fortunate to um get some business done that way and that really gave us some breathing room um to where we could make it to the sales and, and not completely panic. Um, but it was very difficult. You know, um, we go to Saratoga every year for the Weenland or the yearling sale and, and shop up there and we sell up there. And I've been going up there, I don't know, maybe 10 years, 15 years. And, and to miss Saratoga, gosh, it, uh, it was pretty eye opening of what, what kind of lifestyle we leave lead. And then we're sitting at home. And we didn't travel and we put, me and my wife were just talking about it. We put like 30,000 less miles on our vehicles last year. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, so it, it was, it was life changing. Yeah, it's, it's been a tough year for sure. And it seems some normalcy coming back, at least in the sense of the sales. Have you noticed that maybe there's a sense looking like it could be a strong market this year? People are ready to kind of get back in action. Oh, I think, um, you know, obviously most pin hookers are pretty optimistic as a whole, but I think this year could be unbelievable for us. It's uh, a lot of people were, were sitting on their money trying to figure out what was going to happen in the world. And then, you know, the stock market has done nothing but go up since probably about June. It's just been going up and up and up. And people that are, obviously the guys that buy a lot of these horses are very heavily invested in that market. And it makes a difference, you know, if they're if they're up 10 or 15 percent for the week or 
80% for the year, it gives them a little um, money that's there to spend. So I think you're going to see a lot of guys that were sitting on their hands last year that just uh, have to get in this year um, and, and one action. Well, can't wait to see it. And Jimbo, I wish you the best of luck with the March sale coming up and all the rest of the season. So fun getting to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit with us. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, hopefully uh, we get to see you down there at Gulfstream or if you get up for the March sale. Absolutely. So pleased to be joined now by trainer Tim Ham, whose name we've seen in the news quite a lot over the past year, but also one that uh, we will be used to seeing a lot at the sales under the banner of Blazing Meadows Farm. Tim, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome, Acacia. Thanks for having me. And looking forward to talking to you a little bit about your consignment, but uh, I think in particular about one very special Philly day out of the office who gave you your, your first grade one victory this past year in the grade one Frisette, second in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. Talk to me a little bit about what the past year has been like with this journey with this very, very special Philly that you have. You know, it's very similar in the day-to-day as it is with all our horses. Um, but when you get a, a one with the ability she has, it just makes it quite a bit more fun. It's same work goes in, same type of things go into them, but the results are a little more rewarding. So, you know, normal day-to-day stuff as a horse would get, but uh, it's been very exciting to get our first grade one and to get to compete in the Breeders' Cup and uh, run well there. Um, it was a great year for, for, for experience from that standpoint. And she started her career in one of the early two-year-old races uh, down at Gulfstream, uh, a big filly going four and a half furlongs back in May. Uh, so I know something we had talked about as she then continued to handle the added distances as you went along. Obviously a strange year due to COVID. What was it like mapping out a schedule for her after that start? Well, I mean, we spaced her races and a good part of that was the fact that she started so early. Um, we knew we wanted to have enough horse left that was fresh enough to to can hopefully compete at the end of the year if the stars aligned. And so other than just facing her races and, and picking them carefully, um, um, that was the biggest part of it. Uh, when you start early like that, you can't make every dance. You got to pick and choose. How rewarding was it to see her be successful in her second start in the Schuylerville at a pretty big price and then at a shorter price uh, in the grade one for Zet after that? I'm very, you know, you break your maiden, you did a golf stream. You don't really know what are, what kind of horses are in each of those races in May at golf stream. Sometimes there's really good ones as we've seen. And sometimes it's just an okay field. So, you know, you get an idea that you've got a good filly. She goes out there, she wins like she's a good filly. But when you actually make that step up uh, to a graded stake where you're going against winners that have all looked good, you know, it kind of vindicates uh, what she did the first out and, uh, kind of gets you a little excited for what's to come. Now she finished second in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies with a with a big performance. What are the plans now to get ready for 2021 with her? Well, she had a few breezes at uh, Tampa. We backed off for a few weeks. She's going to breeze again, most likely Thursday, either Thursday or Friday of this week. Um, and we'll just let her tell us, kind of like we did last year, there's no real big rush. Of course, the Kentucky Oaks is is coming uh, uh, timely as it always does the first week in May. So, I mean, we would like to make that, but we will not uh, 
jump through hoops and do things that she's not ready to do to make that date. Hopefully she does it on her own and we'll be in good shape to get a prep in her and go to the Oaks. Now, as mentioned, she was your first grade one winner, your first Breeders' Cup starter as well. What does she mean to you? How special is she to you and given the journey that she's taken you on? Well, you know, forever you're going to remember your first grade one win, right? So, I mean, she'll forever have that uh, uh, denotation by her name when I think of her. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping she helps us turn the page. And I said this in, uh, last year when someone asked me that it becomes more of a, uh, a habit than the ex ex um, exception. So, you know, I think she's opened that door. It's kind of like in a lot of things in life. Once you do it once, you've at least learned the way and you know what can happen. So we're hoping that uh, those doors continue to open for her and for us. Now, she's by Into Mischief, which is arguably the hottest sire ever right now, and uh, bred by Sienna Farm, who still owns the filly, as do you with your Blazing Meadows Farm. What went into creating day of, a day out of the office? And, and tell me a little bit about the story of uh, her breeding and, and how she got to be uh, with you and staying with you through training. Um, we have a history with Sienna Farm going back five, six years. We do a handful or less, three to five uh, yearlings a year that we go on to race together in partnership. Um, she fell into that category. Um, uh, Nacho and uh, Dave Pope and Nacho uh, run the farm day to day. Anthony Maganero, of course, is the owner of Sienna or the principal. I guess they're all owners and partners. But uh, uh, Nacho called me. We went out, went over the yearlings. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have this one uh, offered in the package. We uh, certainly were glad to get an into mischief. He wasn't quite as hot then, although he was still really hot, but he's, like you said, caught on fire. Maybe the best sire since I've been alive anyhow, the way he's going. So, you know, she was a big scopey rangy filly that looked like she had a lot of promise and we were excited to get her. Now, as mentioned, uh... She was one in partnership with Sienna Farm. You also have a longstanding partnership with Windstar as well. Tell me a little bit about that and, and the working relationship that you have with them. Um, that goes back uh, several more years, over a decade. But uh, we started doing a few two-year-olds with Windstar. Um, uh, Doug Coth and Elliot Walden uh, gave us an opportunity to get in there. Um, Elliot and I have had a close relationship ever since. Had some success early on. I think we had Bluegrass Cats first winner and some other sires that they're freshman sires. We've had we had first winners by them. Um, then we started a breeding partnership that actually focuses mostly around Ohio breads and Ohio accredited breads with Windstar, of which we uh, have about 25 plus or minus mares in full with them that will full here in 2021 in that program. Um, we always do a few outside Ohio horses with them as well. And it's been, you know, one of the staples and backbone to our program now that got us really started uh, um, with the partnerships with the Kentucky Farms going back over 10, 12 years ago. Ohio, of course, the home base for you. But um, as you mentioned, expanding uh, to kind of cover all aspects of it and, and all locations with any breeding in Ohio or otherwise, what are some of the things that go into creating those, those matches, choosing the mayor, choosing the stallion, um, and trying to find the, the best horse to fit a program, um, or maybe just the best horse in general? What are some of the things that go into that? Acacia, there's so much involved in it. You know, a lot of it, uh, you know, of course, Windstar stands stallion, so they're 
you know, we've got to make the best for their stallions, promoting them. A lot of times there's third year stallions, second year stallions, third year stallions um, are looking for a boost. I think the Ohio program allows those stallions to get some extra mares and maybe able to get some black type stakes winners. So that plays into it, of course, um, taking the mares and match them to the right stallion, both physically, um, genetically. Um, there's a, there's a million ways, I guess that's an exaggeration, but there's many ways to approach the mating. Mm -hmm. I think we just use, along with Windstar and our partnerships, a lot of common sense, what works for them, what promotes their horses the best, what works for our mares, what promotes them the best, and what does the paper tell us, what does the genetics tell us, what do the crosses tell us, and we just combine that, uh, take our best guess, best hypothesis, I guess you would want to phrase it, and, uh, and put them together. We've had the uh, a champion two-year-old in the state of Ohio, I think five or six years running um, with Windstar, sometimes both Billy and Cole, sometimes just one sex or the other, but uh, it's been a very promising, rewarding, fun partnership for sure. We're getting ready now in uh, about a week's time for the OBS March two-year-old sale, and your Blazing Meadow Farms is a pretty strong um, strong draft ready to go with some interesting new stallions too. Tell me a little bit about what we might be able to expect from Blazing Meadows at the, the sale coming up. I think we've got a great group of 14 going to the March sale. Um, we have a Liam's map, whose course has been very, very hot. Um, uh, uh, we got a, a Lord Nelson, New Stein. Um, uh, some of the more, so we got a McLean's Music, who's obviously had some nice runners recently. Um, more than ready, Cole, the Curling Cole, the Clint Cole. Um, I could go on and on, but um, all in all, it's a very deep consignment with some quality horses. What are some of the things that you look for, the telltale signs to say that a horse is ready, for instance, to go into an early two-year-old sale like the March one? Well, we take all our horses, you know, we race a lot of horses, we sell a lot of horses, we put them on a similar program. The ones that handle it, kind of digest it the best, maintain their, uh, their mind and their weight, um, do it all kind of easy, those horses to be ready to go early and those are the ones we point towards these early two-year-old training sales wanted to ask you um as far as pointing to sales have you noticed the the month in which a horse is born sometimes an early foal or a later foal does that really play a part at all in a two-year-old or at any age really being ready before others are you know, I I really don't pay attention to the foaling date. Uh, if the horse is immature mentally or physically, I think it kind of shows regardless of the foaling date. I mean, obviously, if you have a January foal, you know, odds are on its side. It may be more mature, more advanced than a May or June foal trying to get to an early sale. I mean, that could prohibit it. But all in all, I do not look at foaling dates to pick which horses are going to which sales. They kind of tell you watching them every day mentally and physically who can handle it so i probably maybe shame on me i could not even looking at this screen it gives me my 14 marked horses unless i blow it up i can't tell you what month they're folding so well that's a, i guess that's a good sign then too that they have shown that they are mature physically and mentally enough and i guess that's kind of leads perfectly into my next question that intangible really that you can't measure with statistics or whatever it may be that mental side of things what do you look for some of those those keys to say that a horse is ready or that a horse is really showing that it's a good one you know, we really watch for their physical appearance. Um, 
I mean, mentally, it's easy to see if you got a horse out there that's refusing or, or propping or spinning or just acting like it's too much for them to handle. You obviously back off them, give them a little break, restart the engine at a later date. So that's, I think, anyone without even much horse knowledge, you can physically see that that horse is not handling the, the situation. But I think, you know, subtly and the more important that separates them is how they hold their weight, how they're staying in the feed tub, um, how they're just, you know, handling that part of, of uh, the physical strain is really what tells you which ones are ready to go forward. Are there some stories that you can share from past sales of maybe some great successes or um, some surprises that you've had with the horses that you've brought to the sales? Um, you know, we've we've got some horses that are memorable that, uh, again, like like their first grade one winner with uh, uh, Day Out of the Office, our first Eclipse winner that was came through our farm and sold at the February two-year-old Calder sale. I think it was 05, was a filly named Wait a While. Mm-hmm. sold her to Arendelle Farm, Todd Pletcher trained her. Um, I thought that was a big accomplishment for our farm. She was also um, uh, done, you know, very good pin hook successfully that way, and she ran out on the track great. I think we also sold, I, Steve and I are good friends, Steve Claceres bought a filly the next year from me called Sky Diva. Yeah. I believe that was Sky Mesa's first grade one winner, and I think it was Steve's first grade one winner. I'm I'm, I'm, I think so. So Steve can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but she was also a, a very fun horse to be around who did success at the track. And then, of course, we bred and raised too much bling, and he went on to have a very successful graded state campaign, the fastest three-year-old of 06. So those are some of the horses that came out of here. We've had over 150 stakes winners out of our farm, many of them graded, and uh, we take pride in that. We break them all here at a training center in Ocala that we own, and uh, we take them from uh, A to Z. That has to be so rewarding following a horse on the racetrack that you sold or had a hand in getting ready and seeing that one be successful in some of those big races. I really does. And, you know, it's really the key to success. Unless you're selling good horses and putting a really good finished product on the track, um, that's the only advertisement you really have. The rest of the advertisement fizzles pretty quickly mm-hmm. and you can put it a big buzz out there, but if they're not performing on the track, none of the else really matters. So it's very rewarding. And also what, uh, what uh, pushes our business on to the next, next year and the next year after that. It's a game that'll keep you humble. That's for sure. Um, when you go to a sale and you have one that maybe you're very high on, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, step-by-step from the time you bring the horses in and, and you're looking forward to this one. Of course, they're going to have the under tax show for a two-year-old sale, maybe some buzz, the vetting process. What are some of the things that can happen between the time that you arrive at, at the OBS grounds, for instance, until they get into the ring? Well, there's a lot that can happen, both good and bad. So, I mean, when you some of the things you don't want to have happen, you ship in new surroundings, they get off their feed, they get a little sniffle or cold at night. Um, things like that are just setbacks, and you hope none of those happen. Um, they could not like the track. They could not be performing their best on the, on the pre-show day. But we try to keep the pressure off as much as we can. We, we keep, again, the same schedule like we're going on to the races. We take them in there. We let them acclimate uh, four or five days, just kind of gallop jog over the track. We'll give them a very, uh, a very uh, conservative little prep freeze just to let them kind of stretch their legs and fill the uh, the track they're going to do their under tack show under. 
you know, they come out of that well uh, and, uh, you know, get them ready for showing at the, at the, at the uh, sale itself, sale grounds. What is the feeling when one of your horses is in the ring? What, what kind of emotions are you feeling at that point when the bidding starts? Um, it's almost like a race, I think. You know, this this game has some of the greatest highs, and certainly it's got some valleys in it, but the highs in this game are what keep us all doing it. When your horse is turning for home and you're in the mix, especially in a stake race, you get this feeling that you can't replicate in any other sport. I grew up as a big sportsman, played a lot of sports. Uh, um, our family's really sports-orientated, so I think the whole racing, you know, obviously it's a sport and fits that, but the charge you get from a horse it's hard to explain how it's a bigger deal than scoring a touchdown or making a three point shot, but, but it really is. You get a, a bigger high off of that. And same in the sale ring, you know, you have a good idea by the time you get in the ring, what kind of horse you're dealing with. If it's one that's under high demand or one that's not, and it's, it's just a great feeling of accomplishment. If you get one in there that is under demand and it's exactly the opposite when <laughs> it's the other way around. Sure. Back in 1995, I read you, bought your first horse for just $10,000. Did you ever think at that time that you would be here where you are in the horse business? No problem. I just said, you know, I went to college for a business degree and had someone told me any point along that, that path, I was going to be training for a living. I would have laughed and, you know, <laughs> said, you better go back and re-eat dinner or whatever you're on. So it was, uh, you know, kind of one of those situations, but I did buy the first horse in 95. Um, and it was really a lot of beginner's luck trained her myself, my, my dad, my mom and I, and, you know, my dad was, uh, racing some horse and mountaineer at the time, but we got her ready to the Philly park after I bought her. Someone says, you bought a PA bread. I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, there's more money in PA. I said, okay. So we got her ready and took her to Philadelphia park. She won by like 10, 11 lengths when the horse's name was Willie Proof. And a guy offers me a hundred thousand for her walking off the track. No, uh, no i had no clue how this game worked and i said oh no i said I, i'm not gonna say it wasn't a business whatsoever. it was just fun i said that sounds like i did pretty good i'm just gonna keep her and we did that we raced her career I ended up having a couple foals out of her maybe four or five and uh that was really what planted the seed when that guy made that offer i thought huh there's more things here than just you know more things involved in the thoroughbred business just getting the horse ready and racing it so it kind of opened up some uh so a thought process that there could be a lot more to this thing a lot of facets to the industry for sure well, tim it was so fun getting a chance to speak to you today best of luck with the sale coming up and can't wait to see uh see the big girl day out of the office back on the track this year thank you acacia we're looking forward to that as well talk to you later thanks Pleased to welcome in now Joe Migliori, who we've known for a long time as a sales associate at West Point Thoroughbreds, now embarking on a new adventure, going out on his own as a bloodstock agent, and we'll be getting a chance to pick his brain a little bit this afternoon. Joe, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me on, Acacia. Tell me a little bit about what uh, the future is holding for you now with this new adventure and starting out on your own as a bloodstock agent and what that role really does entail. Well, it's, it's just really exciting. It's something that, uh, you know, to be completely honest, uh, you know, from an early age, you know, uh, being in this industry and trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do, I, there was always an allure, you know, to the sales and, and to the guys that were out there working the sales and, and picking out horses. You know, I remember being 
know, 12, 13 years old and, and kind of seeing, uh, you know, the Saratoga select sale and, and watching a lot of the guys, you know, work uh, that sale and, and kind of wondering, you know, hey, how do you get to that point, you know, where you can be the individual that, you know, recommends to an owner to, you know, spend all that money to, to purchase a horse that could potentially go on to do something, uh, you know, fairly prominent. And, uh, you know, for me, it was always just something that was rather fascinating and, you uh, was able to finally, you know, work my way up to this point where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now able to kind of branch out on my own. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's been a long journey, just turned 30 years old and, uh, you know, I've done plenty of different jobs in the industry, but uh, happy to finally be where I, I think, you know, uh, deep down always kind of had, you know, my sights on, uh, on being a bloodstock agent. And I want to ask about a couple of those different roles that you had, but let's start at the beginning. Obviously, you're the son of a champion jockey and Richard Migliori. Um, you grew up around the racetrack. Was it always racing for you that was going to be your career path? As as much as it is to my parents' dismay that I didn't, you know, end up outside of this industry, I think at times I you know, and not for, not for lack of trying, you know, you went and got the four-year uh, college degree at the University of Delaware and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe for a split second considered some other careers, but I, just the allure of the racetrack always, you know, was there for me. And, and uh, look, you know, dad being a jockey, I think when I was a, a, a little, little kid, you know, that was, you know, what I wanted to do, but, uh, you know, obviously got far too tall for that. Uh, and, you know, and, and was recognizing that at a pretty early age as well. I think, you know, by 13 or 14 years old, I was already taller than him. So, uh, you know, and knowing that he struggled with his weight a little bit, uh, you know, it, it, once I was bigger than him at, uh, before I was even 16, the, the jockey thing came off the table pretty fast. And, um, no, for me, I, I never, I never really thought there would be anything else other than racing. You did the Irish National Stud program as well. Tell me a little bit about that program and A, why you felt that was going to be something that would help propel your career, a program like that, and then B, the things that you took out of it moving into uh, the real world after that. Absolutely. And and I can't speak highly enough about the program. And, and it really did kind of catapult uh, me forward in terms of, you know, kind of my experience, you know, uh, uh, on the breeding side of the industry. And, and uh, you know, I, I really, before that, up to that point, I, everything I had done, you know, around the racetrack had been, uh, in, uh, you know, in the industry had been around the racetrack, uh, you know, and in particularly, uh, you know, the New York uh, racetrack. So, you know, having a bunch of jobs, you know, hot walking on the backstretch, you know, kind of interning in the press box, uh, you know, I'd, I'd gotten to a point where, I knew that there was this whole other side of the coin, this you know, this whole other half of the equation here, uh, and I had never worked on a stud farm. I had never you know been abroad to work with horses. Uh, so looking at the program and also seeing that you know that there was a an educational side to it too. You know, you're working on the farm, but you're also you know attending lectures in the afternoon, and they have uh, you know plenty of different you know uh, industry leaders come in to to give those lectures. It was very appealing to me, uh, you know, to be able to kind of kill two birds with one stone where, okay, I'm going to learn more about how to work hands-on on a stud farm. And I'm also going to learn about, uh, you know, a variety of different topics from the lecturers that they have to come in and um, was lucky enough to get onto the course. Uh, and that was in 2014. Uh, and it, we had a great group of individuals, many of, of you know, my classmates, you know, there I'm still very close with and uh, just learned a tremendous amount, made made a tremendous amount of contacts. Uh, and then honestly, leaving there, you know, that 
was able to kind of propel me into you know a trip down to Australia mm-hmm. uh, to work at Arrowfield Stud and and continued on kind of the the stud farm uh, journey, if you will, and and took me to another country that I lived in you know for another seven or eight months. Uh, as well. So at the Irish National Stud, I, I, I owe them a lot in terms of, you know, kind of the advancement that they gave me at a young age. And working at Arrowfield, I mean, you were working with some some pretty st- top stallions, a, a top class breeding operation, you know, that you hear so much about and that you see so much success come out of. What was it like working there and, and learning that side of things? Uh, it was another incredible experience. I mean, I don't think I quite knew when I was first going down there uh, how prolific, uh, you know, a stallion like Reduce Choice uh, and the sons of his that now stand there, you know, really were and, and what kind of a dominant force they are on the Australian thoroughbred. And, and you know, that sire line, uh, you know, really, you know, has had a prolific effect you know, uh, not just on uh, racing down there, but, you know, the sales, um, you know, when I was there, uh, I think that uh, Snitzel was somewhere in the stud fee range of, of $70,000. And now I think he's uh, upwards of 200. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, outside of just the, uh, the Australian sires as well, uh, you know, there was Animal Kingdom was, uh, was shuttling down there at the time. And, and uh, you know, so that was, in a, you know, a U.S., a Kentucky Derby winner, uh, you know, a horse that I was familiar with and uh, certainly held a, a whole lot of mares in the covering shed for those stallions and, uh, and also continued to meet some great people down there. Uh, you know, the Masara family, uh, just an incredibly generous uh, family and, and was happy to have the opportunity to work, uh, you know, down at Arrowfield. And after the breeding season was able to work the, uh, the Magic Millions uh, yearling sale. And, and, you know, that was uh, a, a, an incredible sale, uh, you know, one that I would love to get back to, you know, one day, uh, you know, on, from the, uh, you know, the, the other side of the coin where I'm, <laughs> you know, the looking at horses as opposed to just showing horses. But uh, who knows, maybe one day in the future, be able to be, make it back down to Australia and go to some sales. Yeah, the Magic Millions, I mean, just seems like the most incredible place to be and the horses that go through there as well. But how important do you think it is for people that are interested in, in working in the industry in whatever role to have an understanding um, like you did to branch out of the breeding side and, and what happens behind the scenes? Because it really is such a big part of it too. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think you need, uh, especially as a young person with aspirations in this industry, you, you need to expose yourself you know, to a variety of, of different avenues that this industry has to hold. Um, you know, if you if you focus, you know, if you tunnel vision too hard on on one thing, you may get very good at that one thing that you've been doing in the industry. But I, I think you need to have a, a bit more of a global sense and, and a bit more uh, of, you know, experience in, in a variety of different areas before you can really, you know, hone in on that one thing that you want to try to do in this industry. There's there's so many different, you know, roles you can pursue. Um, so why not, you know, afford yourself the opportunity to, to get a little bit of experience in each one and, and then kind of decide, you know, what you get the most enjoyment from. I, I think if you get too wrapped up in, oh, I'm going to be this, you know, you might, you might decide five, six, seven years down the line that, you know, hey, I wish I would have tried, you know, uh, something different. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so many different roads you can take. So, uh, you know, to any young people out there that might be listening to this, I, I, would, I would emphasize, you know, 
uh, horses are horses, whether you're in the United States or Europe or Australia or, or you know, so get out there and travel. It, it can be a great way to, uh, you know, kind of see other parts of the world as well to, you know, use your horsemanship experience to kind of, uh, you know, work in, uh, many different countries. Yeah. You never know where it's going to take you. I mean, I don't think I would ever have voluntarily signed up to go to Qatar or Hong Kong and, you know, horses took me there. So you never know what this world is going to give you and the opportunities are, are really endless. And I think traveling is such an important part of it. Um, but for the last six years, you've been a sales associate at West Point Thoroughbreds. And I know you've said many times the lessons that you've learned in that role you're going to take on in the future. Just tell me a little bit, maybe a Cliff Notes type of version. Um, but what are some of the things you're going to be taking away from your experience working with West Point? I think far and away the the biggest thing I'm going to take away from West Point is is how to communicate with people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's a role I was in where I was, um, you know, the representative for uh, you know roughly 150 to 175 you know uh, active partners at any one given time, and you know, when you, when you talk to that many people about, you know, and, and sometimes even about the same horse or about the same race, you're going to have, you know, different reactions, different, uh, you know, responses. You're going to have people that can get very upset after a race. You're going to have, you know, people that are, you know, take everything, even negative news with, with in tremendous stride. So I think the, the variety of, you know, communicative experiences that I had there, you know, it almost just accelerated that process where if, you know, if I had started out six years ago, just dealing with maybe five different owners or, or you know, something like that, I don't think I would have learned, you know, or, or encountered, you know, anywhere near the amount of things that I learned and encountered with, with West Point. Um, and, and I think that for me, far and away, just kind of advanced you know, my ability in, you know, being able to handle any kind of news uh, and you get all different sorts of news in regards to horses, uh, you know, whether you're, when you're owning them uh, and just really accelerated that experience of, okay, you know, this type of injury, you know, what's the time frame for recovery? You know, how should you portray that to an owner? You know, how do you explain that the best to them? Uh, You know, all sorts of racetrack situations as well, you know, good performances, bad performances, bad rides from a jockey, great rides from a jockey. Uh, you know, I, I think just that all encompassing element to it where, you know, you're dealing with so many people that, that for me is the true takeaway. And then mm-hmm. also, you know, just the, the, you know, the, the people that I worked with there, I worked with some tremendous people there and, and, and hopefully going to remain, you know, friends with all of them going forward. Um, you know, it, it, overall, I, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the six years I spent there. I'm sure. And um, laying the foundation, certainly for the the new adventure and um, the OBS March two-year-old in training sale coming up in about a week's time. Uh, What are we looking at? Will you be active there at the sale? Is this kind of when things kick off for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the past, uh, you know, week to 10 days or so have been, uh, you know, down in Florida and and going to several uh, of the different uh, farms where the you know consigners are getting these horses, you know their final kind of preparations in for the sale, and uh, it, you know yes, OBS March will be the first one, kind of the lifting off point, uh, you know, and, and hope to be able to buy uh, a couple of horses there, um, you know. But the beauty of the two-year-old sale season is if uh, you know if if things don't go your way at the first sale, you still have several two-year-old sales, you know, to follow that one. Um, you know, the Phasic Tipton sale in Miami is a sale I will be at. That's that's obviously a more of a you know, high end and kind of boutique sale. And, uh, you know, 
hope to buy a horse there, but you know, won't be upset if I don't. Uh, and then, you know, you have two, you know, fairly larger sales, uh, you know, towards the, the back end of the two-year-old sales season in, in OBS April and the phasic Tipton sale up at Timonium where uh, you might be able to do some more value buying there. You know, there's going to be mm-hmm. more horses cataloged in those two last sales and, uh, you know, the prices might be a little bit more on the friendly side. So uh, expect that maybe, you know, I'll have some more uh, work or some more activity in, in those later two sales, but still definitely, uh, you know, I think I'll be able to, to buy a horse or to, uh, you know, at OBS March and and maybe even Miami if I'm lucky. And to kind of dig in a little bit more into buying at some of these two-year-old sales, tell me a little bit about the process as, of course, with two-year-old sales, two-year-olds in training, we get a chance to see them breeze. You obviously have the pedigrees. There's a lot of things that go into making a short list before you even decide which ones you're going to bid on. So tell me a little bit about what your process is like now approaching it from that, that bloodstock agent lens, I should say. Absolutely. And I think you start, you know, right off the top, you know, with this pool of horses and and the the work that you do throughout the sale is kind of a constant whittling down or, you know, of that group of horses, you know, taking uh, the initial, I think, you know, OBS is, is between six and 700 and, and narrowing that down after the breeze show to maybe, you know, a uh, hundred to 150, you know, horses that went out on the track and did something that really caught your eye, you know, then from that point on evaluating them physically, uh, you know, on the end of a shank and, and looking at their confirmation and whittling that down to another, you know, say 40 or 50, uh, you know, then the pedigree kind of comes into play a little bit more for me than at least at the two-year-old sales. Um, you know, whereas maybe a yearling sale pedigree would, you know, be a, a bucket that they have to kind of pass through maybe a little bit earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then once you kind of have your final, maybe 20 or so that, that really fit, uh, you know, what you're looking for, or what your, you know, your owner's orders are looking for, uh, you know, that's when the, the vetting, pro- you know, part of the process comes in and, and that, you know, although it's, uh, it's something that comes towards the end of, of this uh, exercise is probably the, the most important, especially at these two-year-old sales. You know, a lot of them, they've been, uh, you know, out on the track and asked to run a furlong or two furlongs uh, faster than they're ever going to have to run again in their mm-hmm. lives. So it's just natural that some of them will, uh, you know, ha- have some blemishes on their vet uh, report, you know, after that. So uh, once you get through the vetting as well, you, you'll be lucky to maybe have, uh, it, you know, depending on how many horses you're looking to buy, a, a group of 10 or so that, that you're really going to actually go up to the ring and bid on. Uh, and, and then, you know, you just hope that horses fall into the, the price, uh, you know, range that you place them in or, or the, you know, the budget that you have to spend. And you had mentioned being down in Florida and going to the farms in Ocala even before the sales start. And how important is that in, in kind of doing that legwork before you even get to the sales grounds? Well, I, I think it's it's something that I've learned from, you know, from other agents as well. Uh, you know, West Point, um, you know, it, their their main agent is uh, a guy, uh, David Ingordo, who, you know, he's always emphasized that. And it's something where... It, when you think about it, it makes a ton of sense because you know what we're we're gonna as a group of people attending the sales watch a horse breeze a furlong uh, and then watch a horse on the end of a shank walk back and forth ten to fifteen times. You know how can you expect to know everything <laughs> or, or have a real true sense of that horse? You know from just watching you know one work and a horse parade around you know for a couple of days you know on the sales grounds it, you'd be a bit foolish to think that you would so you know if you're able to go out 
to these farms and, and, you know, kind of develop that base knowledge of, okay, I've seen that horse, you know, breeze a couple of times now, or I've seen that horse, you know, in the flesh, you know, three or four or five different times, you know, you're going to have a little bit more knowledge of the horse and a little bit more of a lasting impression of, of what kind of horse they actually are. Um, and it's, it's much, much tougher to do your job if you're only affording yourself one opportunity to, to see a horse that you're going to end up buying. Are there certain things as you go through the process, that whittling down process, you know, every, every horse is going to have something. There's no one perfect horse. And if that horse appears perfect, then there's probably something hiding behind the scenes that's going to come back and show itself soon. So are there certain things that you've learned that you are willing to be a little bit more forgiving of? Uh, Certainly. I think there's, you know, there's certain, uh, you know, confirmation aspects that you, you can be a little bit more forgiving of than others. And, and like you said, I mean, if, if a horse is checking every single box, well, I'm pretty confident I'm not going to really have the budget to go buy that horse then. So you do need to be forgiving of certain things, whether that's, you know, some people uh, can be a little bit more forgiving on the pedigree element. Uh, You know, some people can, you know, uh, be a little bit more forgiving of uh, things like offset knees. Uh, You know, there's there's a variety of things. And and another beauty of the sales to me has always been that, you know, this is not an entirely objective process where it's okay if I, if I find this 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 and this I've bought a graded stakes winner you know it's mm-hmm. it's much more subjective and we all have our own styles we all have our own uh, you know things that pique our interest and uh, you know it, it's it's open to interpretation right so you know mm-hmm. so we each each agent out there each you know owner out there you know they might have something that you know they've kind of over time developed and said, you know what, well, I really don't mind that. And that might save me, you know, some money as well. Uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the horses will go out there and, and show us that on the racetrack, hopefully uh, later in their careers. And starting off, you said you plan on buying for Rob Masiello, who's uh, been an owner for the last 15 years or so. And I know a, a close friend of yours as well. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Rob and what maybe some of your goals are together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously became very close with Rob, you know, Rob, uh, when I initially came on with West Point, you know, I think was still kind of in the younger, you know, stages of his, his ownership career, if you will. And, and, uh, you know, it became very close that way. You know, I think, I think we were, we relate to each other because, you know, we, we, you know, he grew up in, in Northern New Jersey. I grew up on Long Island, uh, you know, fans of, of many of the same, you know, sports teams, uh, and very much just kind of similar backgrounds. Um, you know, it went to colleges in the mid Atlantic. So there was a lot of things that I think, you know, uh, made us relatable. And, and then we, we very much look at the game in a similar light, you know, horse racing in, in a similar fashion. And, you know, uh, some of the, the tracks that, you know, we want to attend and, and the tracks that we want to be active at, you know, those, we, we, those are kind of shared places that, you know, we've had, you know, experiences at, you know, Saratoga, um, you know, Belmont. And then uh, to be completely honest, we're both gigantic fans of aqueduct in the winter time i know <laughs> i know many people might not share oh, I'm, uh, I'm right there with you <laughs> yeah I mean, many people might not share that uh, affection for a track like aqueduct but uh we certainly miss being back there and can't wait until uh you know things with the pandemic open up a little bit but uh you know i, I think you know originally uh you know as a, when you own horses in, in syndicates or as a fractional owner i think you're a lot of times buying a small percentage at a chance at a dream a horse that might you know make a triple crown trail or something like that and i think rob has definitely had a big shift now to you know focusing on 
you know, horses that it, it, they don't necessarily need to be the horse that's going to make the Kentucky Derby. You know, uh, you can have a lot of fun, you know, focusing on on other things. And, and also, uh, you know, I think he's leaned towards buying more fillies uh, as time has gone on here as well, because, you know, as a young guy in the game, I think he recognizes that if I, you know, if I can't have some potential residual value uh, mm-hmm. with these horses, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot tougher, uh, you know, financially to keep going. So I, I think you're going to see him, you know, with a lot more fillies racing out there. I think in the in the next, you know, two to five years, I think you're going to see him with some broodmares as well. And uh, hopefully uh, create something that can, you know, kind of be a little bit more self-sustaining as time goes on. Now, getting ready to uh, to get started on this new adventure for you, how are you feeling? Are there are there some nerves, um, excitement? I'm sure. What's kind of going through your head as you're getting ready to uh, to go to your first day as a bloodstock agent, kind of uh, flying solo now? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll to be completely honest, I, I'd say uh, you know towards the end of uh, last year and maybe the first you know uh, a couple of weeks of, of 2021. There was a lot more nerves than there was excitement, um, you know. But I think now, as as I've gotten to the point where I've I've kind of set everything up and and you know put the pieces in motion here and and you know doing some some press, some media, you know, and uh, things like this. And now that the sales are just a couple of weeks away, it's a whole lot more excitement. Um, you know, a, a little bit of a slow winter thinking about it, <laughs> you know, throughout. Uh, the, the downtime, if you will. But, uh, you know, now that things are kicking off, you know, usually once these two old sales kick off for me, I always kind of view that as the start of the year. And, and, you know, that'll run us right into the Triple Crown season. And then before you know it, we'll be up in Saratoga. So uh, a whole lot more excitement uh, here uh, on the second day of March, as opposed to maybe the second day of January. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure as you're getting ready to kick off kind of what your season is. And finally, just wanted to ask, I mean, how how do you think it will feel? Obviously, you've been involved in in the purchase of horses with West Point Thoroughbreds, which has had a tremendous amount of success in in graded stakes ranks, including Always Dreaming and the Kentucky Derby. And But um, what do you think that kind of validation or, or gratification, I should say, will be when it's you that's behind the helm and you see those horses that you spotted going out and doing well for, for your owners? I, I, I have I've a strong inkling that it'll be, you know, a, it'll be borderline emotional in a sense, right? It, it'll, yeah. you know, it'll be something where, you know, you've put in all this work, you know, to find a, a certain horse. And, and then if they're going to reward the owner with a performance that, you know, is going to be a lifetime memory for them, you know, it, I, I'm sure for any owner out there, you know, if you, if you win a, a graded stake, you know, at an A-level racetrack, you know, a, a premier circuit, whether that's New York, you know, Kentucky or, or, or California, um, you know, that's something you're going to remember for the rest of your life, whether you own horses for five years or you own horses for 50 years, uh, you know, the, the horses that are able to have those big accomplishments, uh, you know, for owners, uh, you know, that's why they're in the game. So, you know, anytime, uh, that, that that's going to happen, uh, you know, Rob's got an incredibly exciting, uh, horse this year named Faya that, you know, we're hoping can reach that level. And, um, you know, if he is to do that, I, I'm sure for both of us, it's going to be, uh, an emotional day. Looking forward to seeing him run for sure. And Joe, wishing you the best of luck with the new venture. I'm sure we'll be uh, be having you on again at some point to talk about one of those winners that you spotted. Absolutely, Acacia. And, and thanks so much for having me on. 
And that will do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thank you so much to everybody that's listened. And a tremendous thank you to my exceptional guests who made this such a full and I think very interesting show. I hope that you all found it as interesting as I did. Looking forward to kicking off the two-year-old sale season. I think it's a really fun time of year. And I think this podcast is really going to take off as well as we'll get a chance to uh, to talk a lot about what's going to happen at these sales over the next couple of months. And who knows, at these two-year-old sales, you may see some future very impressive first out maiden winners at Saratoga or maybe down the line, some graded stakes winners as well. So hope that you all will be following along uh, with the sales coming up unless you're working at them too. Uh, I hope that uh, we have some industry people that have been following along on these podcasts as well. As always, if you have any interesting ideas or suggestions for me, please send them my way. Please share this podcast and stay tuned for another great episode coming up next week. Thanks everybody.